The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. We'd like to go back to the book of Acts. We'd like to go to Acts chapter 20 this morning to introduce our thoughts and been trying to examine the aspects of the original kingdom of God and that thriving kingdom that we see expanding by leaps and bounds in the book of Acts. And uh, today we'd like to look at repentance and faith, repentance and faith. And I believe that we'll see from not just the book of Acts, but throughout the totality of the New Testament, that that's the message of the kingdom of God, repentance and faith. But Primitive Baptist, when we hear repentance and faith, many people get heart palpitations to break out in a cold sweat because we've been afraid, I believe, to rightly divide what Scripture says about it because of people who haven't used it in the appropriate context. But <clears throat> we have to make sure that we preach things in a biblical way, even if, un, even if other people may present similar words or simple, similar topics in a unbiblical way. Acts chapter 20, here the Apostle Paul is giving a, what he thinks might be uh, his last message to the Ephesian elders. Uh, we know that the Lord providentially preserved Paul as he's on his way back to Jerusalem, and he, he doesn't necessarily know what things are going to befall him there. He ends up being imprisoned and going to Rome and having a, much more to do in his ministry. Uh, but here at this time, as he's delivering this, this sermon to the Ephesian elders, it, it's very similar, at least from his perspective, uh, to the kind of message and the kind of charge that he's delivering in 2 Timothy which is his last charge, his last message to not just Timothy, but to the church as a whole. He, he knows there in 2 Timothy that he's about to die, and these are the things that I want to make sure that you are charged with before I pass on the scene. And he, he's making his way back to Jerusalem, and he knows he has a lot of enemies in Jerusalem. And if it wasn't for the providence of God, those enemies would have slain him in Jerusalem. But there was much more in the kingdom of God that the Lord intended for, the Paul, for Paul to do. So he's delivering this message here to these Ephesian elders as somewhat of a final charge. I may not see you again. I, I uh, may be killed in Jerusalem. I don't know. Nevertheless, not my will, but, but thine be done. And he's delivering this with, a, with an intention that this could be the last time I ever have the chance to charge these servants of the Lord who are leaders and elders in the Ephesian church. And I want to highlight here in Acts chapter 20, a beautiful, the whole sermon to them is, is beautiful, but we want to highlight just a few verses here in the middle of it. Acts chapter 20, his final charge to these Ephesian elders, he's reminding them of their, their past service together, particularly in Ephesus. He says, uh, verse uh, 19, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, 
but have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Those three years I spent in Ephesus, I preached the gospel in the school of Tyrannus, and, and uh, I preached the gospel boldly and publicly, but also we spent time discussing God's word over supper and fellowship, and I, I went from house to house, not just preaching publicly in the marketplace. But this was the theme of his, of his message, okay? This was the theme, especially of his external preaching and his external ministry. Uh, we've discussed as we've tried to consider the book of Acts that most of the book of Acts is not focused on sermons that are delivered on the Lord's Day preaching to already baptized members of the church. Most of the book of Acts is focused on public preaching to those that are not yet members of the church. Now, when he uh, preached on Sunday, uh, he got into a little bit more of the finer points of Scripture. He says a little bit later on here in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. So we don't have many of those sermons that I believe would probably read very similar to not necessarily the book of Acts, but very similar to the epistles such as Philippians. That's a, that's a great encouragement and a joyful book or, uh, Ephes or, or the book of Ephesians that uh, exalts election and predestination and then continues in those final three chapters for how we need to live and love your wives and raise your children and nurture admonition of the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> but most of the book of Acts is him preaching and other apostles preaching publicly to those that are not yet members of the church, okay? That's the focus of the book of Acts because the book of Acts focuses on the expansion of the kingdom of God. So what was his... Uh, Focus. What was the Apostle Paul's focus as he interacted with people outside the church? What was his focus in preaching to those that were not yet baptized members of the kingdom of God? Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. I had the same message regardless of who I talked to. Whether they're Jews that have a misunderstanding of the law or they're Greeks that have a misunderstanding of paganism, I preached the same message. It didn't matter who I, who I was preaching to, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the Apostle Paul as he preached, especially in a public way, interacting with those that are not yet members of the church, his message was repentance and faith. <laughs> Repentance and faith. Let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, the, the latter part of Hebrews chapter 5, he's rebuking these Jews that had come uh, from a Jewish background and now they're being enticed to, to uh, commingle uh, the law with grace and they are oil and water. They just simply don't mix. Grace and, and works just don't mix. And he's saying, look, I'm a little disappointed in you. <clears throat> I'm disappointed in you. You should have been growing. You should have been maturing. Uh, you're still a babe in Christ, but you should have been reaching the point where you should be teaching others. You should have matured more during this time period. So I'm, I'm not going to go back. He, that, that's the, the, the admonition that he gives at the latter part, chapter 5, and that flows into the beginning of chapter 6. I'm not going to go back and, 
and uh, lay the, the principles that you should have already had a good understanding of. You don't, you don't need to stay a babe in Christ focusing on these basics. You need to be growing and maturing. What are, what are the basic principles of the doctrine of Christ? Hebrews chapter 6 and in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go unto perfection, maturity. You need to be growing and maturing. But what are the basic building blocks, okay? What is the basic principles of the doctrine of Christ? What's the basic principles? Not laying again the foundation. What's the very first thing he said? What is the basic building block of the doctrine of Jesus Christ? The very first cornerstone. The foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Now, when you see somebody exhibiting that, what does that lead into? The very next principle, verse 2, of the doctrine of baptisms, right? Somebody displays fruits meet for repentance. They, they display a faith and belief in Jesus Christ, and then that's them. Can they for baptism, right? These are the basic building blocks of the kingdom of God, the foundation of repentance from dead works, Faith toward God, doctrine of baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So <clears throat> the basic building blocks of the kingdom of God is calling people to repentance and faith. Now we've got to put it in the right context, right? Got to put it in the right context. And the reason why we've been so nervous about this is because, particularly those in the reform camp, have put it in the, in the wrong context and, and made an eternal application to repentance and faith. Um, God is offering eternal salvation to those who choose to place, place their belief and faith in Jesus Christ. They have correctly said, <clears throat> as we've held to here uh, at Macedonian Church as well, that there's no biblical basis for the sinner's prayer, right? We've dealt with that extensively. We have have a very detailed article on that on Macedonia's website, and many people have correctly said that there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible, right? You can't find it. There's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. But instead of saying you have to pray the sinner's prayer and set Jesus Christ as the means of being saved, instead it's been repackaged as you have to choose to place faith in God. Now, <clears throat> our goal today is not necessarily to uh, exposit the different aspects of faith, but, but I do think it's important for us to very briefly acknowledge that there are different applications of faith in Scripture, okay? There are different uses, as there is with just about every word in Scripture, has to be rightly divided, and there's different context and application of that. <clears throat> you have the use of faith that's describing the overall body of belief. Let us earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That's the overall body of belief of the church, which we are called to defend as the pillar and the ground of the truth. Then you have the indwelling nature of God that the Lord gives in regeneration. That's faith. Faith is, not only is it the basic building block of the kingdom, but, but faith is the most important thing in our daily life in serving God. Do you understand that? I, I, I really feel like uh, I've been directed in other areas, but we really need to spend some time understanding what faith is because without faith, it is impossible 
to please God. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The just shall live by faith. In Habakkuk, it's the just shall live by his faith. It's not, it's not your faith. God gave it to you, and you've got to work out what God's worked in. But every single action of your daily life is walked by faith. The just shall live by faith, okay? But there is a significant difference between the indwelling nature of purity of faith that we have in our heart, in the soul, in the new birth, and then the way in which that faith is worked out in our life. Now, when it's worked out, that's called active faith. And I think the simplest way to consider active faith is simply belief. It's belief. Um, you have the indwelling nature of God, of faith that cannot be corrupted, that I would contend that that's what 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 is talking about, that your faith can overcome the world. There's, there's nothing in this world that can corrupt the nature of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the purity of faith that you have in the soul, there's nothing that can get inside of you that can corrupt that. But <clears throat> if we're not diligent, we certainly can quench the outworking of that faith. Uh, there are multiple times in um, the ministry of Jesus Christ that he told the apostles, sometimes you got little faith. You know, it's, it's diminished. It should, it, there's some people, the Gentiles, the two times that he commended people for great faith, they were Gentiles, not the Jews. And he said, you're exhibiting great faith, but there were times that the apostles were exhibiting little faith. And that was a couple times he told the disciples, you're ha you have no faith. Well, I mean, they were still born again, right? And they didn't lose the integrity of the new birth. But in that moment, their faith was not being worked out actively and boldly. And... Um, we all struggle with that balance of belief and unbelief. The, the dad that came to Jesus, whose son was being tormented, and he said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe, right? But Lord, help thou my unbelief. So when we're working out faith, the Bible calls that belief. The Bible calls that belief. Um, Abraham in Romans chapter 4. He's the example of justification by faith. It says there, and uh, quoted from Genesis chapter 15, but reiterated there in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Okay? Now, what does the Bible call that? The Bible says when he believed God, he was justified by faith. Okay? So what is justification by faith? <clears throat> it's primarily belief, right? Believing God. And we need to make that first step of believing God and joining the church. But that is a lifetime cycle of belief, struggling with unbelief, repenting, believing God again. And, and we see that in the life of Abraham, don't we? He's the example of justification by faith. But we see sometimes he believes God. Many times he doubts God. He makes bad mistakes. The Lord rebukes him. And then he says, I messed up. And then he believes God again. Okay? But... The Bible calls Abraham's belief justification by faith. And then there in Romans, the beginning of Romans chapter 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God and access by faith into the grace wherein we stand. Okay? So faith is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, 22, right? <clears throat> no one can just choose to have faith. You can only 
exhibit and work out the faith that God's already worked in. Then we get into the aspect of justification by works in James chapter 2, where he says, look, if, you're fa- if you say you believe God, okay, this is when your faith can be quenched. This is the little faith and the no faith. Um, if you say you believe God, that's good. That's good. You need to profess a belief in Jesus Christ. But also don't forget there in James chapter 2 that even the devils believe and tremble. So what, what distinguishes a believer in Jesus Christ from the devils? Works that exhibit that faith. So he says, if you're, you're, uh, your faith is not backed up by works, he says your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. That's James chapter 2. The Bible makes it very clear. Does that mean you're not a child of God? No, of course not. But you're not working out faith through active, bold belief in the manner that you ought to. Okay? So, we're called upon on a daily basis. We need to confess Jesus Christ and uh, join the church. But that is just the first step of repentance and faith. Okay? But the New Testament consistently calls upon not just the unconverted, but also us, us that are members of the church to go through this continual process of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Let's go through... Um, Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Actually, before we do that, let's go to Luke. Luke 24. Luke 24. And um, the real problem with the language that's been used, particularly of those in the reform camp, of calling upon people who hear the gospel to place repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore you will be saved. That's really just a different packaging of the exact same doctrine of the sinner's prayer that how are you saved? That's really what it boils down to. How are you saved to heaven? And the majority of Christianity would say, even if they say that they believe in grace, by the way, side note, if you have conversations with people in the workplace and other settings, there are very few people that will just stand up and say, I believe in salvation by works. I mean, I believe that my works are good enough to go to heaven. There's, there's not that many people that are going to say that. Instead, they're going to say, I believe in grace. You know, I'm a sinner and I have no hope of salvation, but I got to believe, but I got to be baptized. And as you've always heard, the, anytime there's a but, it just butted out the grace, right? There is no commingling of grace and an action of man that is necessary to secure your eternal salvation, right? Grace and works are mutually exclusive, and any time that you have performed an action to gain eternal life, then you are saved by works. So it is packaged as... Yes, there are people that are in an unregenerate state. You are called upon to repent and choose to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, then you will be eternally justified. It's one of the most important distinctions that we have to make. Justification by faith does not have eternal consequences. 
It's only in the heart and the conscience of the already born again child of God to give them assurance and peace. When we start talking about eternal application of justification by faith, we are getting into another gospel, okay? So, when someone would hold that you have to choose to place your faith in Jesus Christ as a condition to be saved and go to heaven, what they're saying is, because faith, active faith, is belief, you're saved by belief. You're saved by belief. And this is a very simple way to think about it, but I don't really don't know how to make it any more simpler. If you begin, some people would call it the sinner's prayer, some people would call it belief, uh, confession, whatever you want to term it. If you begin that process, unregenerate, and you end that process, saved and regenerate, what are you saved by? You're saved by belief, right? Which is a work. <laughs> it's a work. Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 6, belief is a work. Now, it's the work of God. It's the work of God. But anyone that says belief is not a work, I don't know what world they're living in. <laughs> I mean, you're telling me that believing God is, not, is, is easy? Like, that's not hard work? Not only is, is belief work, it's hard work. <laughs> I don't know what world you're living in if you think belief isn't, isn't a work. And even the scriptures clarify that it's a work. So anyway, even if it's packaged, even if belief, the work of belief is packaged as faith, we are not saved by choosing to place faith in Jesus Christ. We're not saved eternally to heaven. Our, our sins are not remitted by choosing to place faith in Jesus Christ or choosing to pray a sinner's prayer or belief or confession or however you want to package it. We are saved solely by the sovereign grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? Right? Now, when you've been born again, you have the ability to understand that and to see that. And the reason why faith, repentance, is you changing your former course of life. But the reason why faith is emphasized, faith in Jesus Christ is emphasized so heavily in the New Testament is you have this constant clash in the early church between faith and the law. Okay, because there were some people who said, yes, I can live good enough to go to heaven. Look at all this stuff I've done. This is what God said is necessary, and I have met that law. Well, if you think that, you don't have an understanding of the law. You don't, because if you offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. I mean, God took this stuff so seriously that back in the Sabbath day, uh, somebody was picking up sticks, and they killed him for it. I mean, you think you can, oh, God takes the law that seriously? <laughs> and you think you can, you know, even if, even if your external actions maybe don't cross the line, God gets down to the thoughts and the intents of your heart. I mean, there's the purpose of the law is to show us how inadequate we are to keep the law and to say my only hope has to be sovereign grace. That's the purpose of the law, okay? But you have this constant clash that these, especially these Jews that are coming they just can't let go of the Mosaic law. And they said, no, you've got to do something. You've got to do something to be saved. You, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the whole law. And there's no new thing under the sun. It's just all repackaged. That, all of Christianity today says you've got to do something. You've got to do something. And the gospel says you do not place your confidence and trust in eternal salvation 
in anything other than Jesus Christ. Anything other than his finished work on the cross. So you have this, this contrast in the New Testament. There's some people over here saying you've got to do something to be saved. And the Apostle Paul is preaching, no, you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's the only thing that's going to give you peace and assurance in your heart of justification by faith. If you think that you're going to feel peace and assurance in your heart by being justified by your deeds of the law, you will never feel the true answer of a good conscience before God. You want to know how you feel that answer of a good conscience? You stand up before a body of believers, you confess Jesus Christ, and you say, I believe through faith that Jesus is my only hope of salvation. You go down in the waters of baptism, and when you come up, you have now been saved. 1 Peter chapter 3, baptism doth now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience Toward God. If you come up out of that water and you are delivered from something that you went down into that water with. Okay? So, we are saved by grace alone, not through your active expression of faith. And the proper context of justification by faith is solely in the conscience and the heart of the born-again believer. Okay? <clears throat> But I want to, as quickly and expediently as we can, and y'all know me, so we'll see how it goes, um, go through the book of Acts. And I want, I want to highlight not just repentance, okay? Repentance is a changing. It's, a, it's not just feeling bad. Repentance is not just be, being convicted. Repentance is a change of life, a 180-degree turn from east to west, from north to south. You go in the exact opposite direction, Okay? Yes, repentance. Bring forth fruits meet for repentance. That was the message of the Apostle John. He was baptizing people, and, and there were some, uh, uh, at a minimum, where there were these, these uh, Pharisees and scribes that, that, G, that uh, Jesus rebuked later on and said, you're whited uh, sepulchers. We don't know if it's the same people, but regardless, they were not living very godly lives, and he said, look, you're vipers. You're vipers. You need to bring forth fruits meet for repentance if I'm going to baptize you. In other words, you're not living according to the dictates of God right now. You're going to need to change your actions for me to dump you in this water, okay? You know, this attitude in Christianity today that come as you are. Well, you know, come as you are, right? I mean, we don't say you got to, um, for you to walk in the back doors of the church, these are the qualifications. But I'll tell you, for you to enter in the waters of baptism, there has to be a change. I mean, if you walk into, uh, into this church and an alcoholic or a drug dealer or living in fornication, there has to be change. There has to be fruits meet for repentance before you're, uh, you're suffered to enter into the kingdom because we have to protect the integrity of the kingdom of God and of the church to say that you just come as you are. Yes, show up. <laughs> show up as you are, but you do not stay. And by the way, that... that that applies to every child of God that's already been baptized. You better not just show up and, and stay as you are. That's what he was rebuking the, uh, uh, those, those Hebrews for at the latter part of chapter 5. You need to be growing. You need to be maturing. You need to have, instead of you just struggling with these, these actions, you being weak in faith and struggling with these little uh, things that, that 
you should have already had caught. You should be ministering to other people instead of you struggling with these basic building blocks that you should have conquered five years ago. Now I understand we all have besetting sins and, and I, I, I have seen, especially in my life, the same things I struggle with five years ago is still what I'm struggling with today. We all have besetting sins, okay? But you need to be growing. You need to be growing. And, and even for those that have already been baptized, we go through this continual process of repentance and faith and conversion because there are all areas of our life that we need to repent of. And if we're all honest, our faith is not as bold and as strong and as resolute as it needs to be. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Oh, but Lord, please, please be gracious to help my unbelief. Okay? So the process of repentance and faith is not just those coming from outside the church to inside. It is a continual part of life in the kingdom. It's a continual part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to focus on the church's external focus. Now, it applies to us, okay? It applies to us to be in this continual process of conversion and repentance and, and our faith hopefully is growing instead of waning. <clears throat> but the focus of the book of Acts is this external focus to preach the gospel of those that do not have an understanding of the gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ and every single one of those sermons, every single one of those sermons ends with a call for the hearers to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Every one of them, okay? <clears throat> let's, before we go to the book of Acts, let's go to Luke. Luke 24, and this is one of those that really just leads right into Acts chapter 1. So much of the Gospels... You have these final interactions with Jesus right before he ascends up into heaven. Much of these, you could um, finish reading almost each of those Gospels and then immediately go into Acts chapter 1 and have a continuous flow. <clears throat> Luke, Luke 24. Verse 46. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Those of you that feel to be condemned and in your sins, you know, there's so many people in Christianity today that the only gospel they've ever heard is that if you don't do something right, if you have this car wrecked today and you're not right with the Lord, you're going to go to hell. There are many people that are born-again children of God that don't have the understanding they need, and they say, somebody's telling them, I've got to do something to be saved. I, I'm putting my confidence of justification before God, I'm putting my confidence in a work, something that I did. And you correctly reach the conclusion that that, that work's not good enough, so you're always doubting it, right? You're always doubting it. So that person is walking around condemned in their conscience, and when they leave that they, they leave that revival, if you will, where, where they said, if you, uh, if you have a car wreck today and you're not right with the Lord, then you're going you're gonna to go to hell. They leave that setting thinking that if I die today, I'm going to hell. They, they think that they're in their sins. But when you hear the message of the gospel that says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, 
Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it whiter than snow. And then you finally believe that. Now, now you feel the answer of a good conscience come down in your soul. Now you feel the application of that remission of sin. When you believe, that's not when your sins are remitted before God. But I want to tell you, if you have felt the remission of sins in your conscience, you know, do you think that uh, David back in the Old Testament, um, in Psalm 51, man after God's own heart, and he had, he committed egregious sins, and he said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, of thy salvation. Don't you, believe, don't you know when he confessed, when he prayed that prayer, he felt in his sins. But when he confessed it, the Holy Spirit came and ministered to him where now he felt his sins were now forgiven before God, right? By the way, as a side note to this, <laughs> this is something preachers among the Prime Baptists could listen, uh, could learn from. The original, I understand things were a lot simpler back then. There's only one gospel, one church. But sometimes we spend so much time having disclaimers about what things don't mean. We take the air out of the room instead of just preaching what it does mean. You want to know what the preachers didn't do every time? They didn't say, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now you understand that's not eternal. Understand that's not, that's not God putting away your sin. They didn't, they didn't I had all these disclaimers. <laughs> just preach the gospel, allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. And when you join the church, now we'll get into the right application, <laughs> okay? Don't take the air out of the room with a thousand disclaimers. Spend 20 minutes telling you what it don't mean instead of what it does mean. You know what they said? Listen, <laughs> if you repent, you are gonna, you're going to feel remitted of your sins, okay? Let's go to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. Now, what I really want to focus on We'll see if we get far enough in this or if we need to revisit this next time. God calls us to radical repentance and faith, okay? Radical conversions, radical. Things that um, in our mind would, would make sense. I mean, um, that normal, even normal Christian people would look at that and say, man, Maybe you're taking this a little too seriously. Maybe, maybe you're being a real zealot, okay? That is the kind of testimonies that we should have in the kingdom of God, okay? The church is not intended to be a middle-class, white-collar, Caucasian kingdom that has people with no problems, the church is intended to be the representation of the original kingdom where Jesus was the friend of publicans and sinners. You want to know who needs to hear the gospel of salvation by grace alone more than anybody? A born-again drug dealer that's living in sin. Those that are living in fornication. Those that are living in all manner of sin. That's who really needs to hear the message of the gospel. That's who really needs to be saved by the gospel. Okay? And it is our responsibility to interact with them, to show them the message of salvation by grace alone, and to reach the point to call them to repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. This is not a country club for people that have everything all together. This is a hospital for broken, destitute publicans and sinners, okay? And those are the people that need the gospel. Those are the people that really need it. Acts chapter 2, they stand up, they preach boldly. I, I pray that you will pray along with me for the Lord, 
to baptize, not just Macedonia Church, but the whole kingdom of God. Lord, baptize us with the Holy Ghost. Bat fully immerse us in the Holy Ghost. But I want you to understand there's some, there's some effects of that. You want to know how the Holy Ghost, when they were baptized with the Holy Ghost, there, there are times that the Holy Ghost is presented as a sweet, gentle little dove. But on the day of Pentecost, it came down with fire. Okay? If we desire to be baptized with the Holy Ghost, some things are going to be burned up. Some things are going to be burned up. Because he manifests himself with fire. There, all of us have dross that needs to be burned away. All of us have chaff that need to be burned away. All of us need to repent of various things in our life. And when the Holy Spirit comes down with fire, he burns away that dross. And at the end of it, we are gold that is more purified, more glorifying to the Lord after that purging of the Holy Spirit with fire than we were before. And that's called discipleship. <laughs> this is how the kingdom of God operates. So what happens is the Holy Spirit of God comes down with fire, cloven tongues of fire. And now these men, <laughs> these men who, they were devout men and they were searching and maybe they didn't understand some things. But you know, I feel like most of them probably felt like they were mostly okay. They were mostly okay before Peter started preaching in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. But by the end of that sermon, by the end of that sermon, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? I mean, we have offended a holy God. We are in our sins. What do we need to do to respond to this, to have a clear conscience that now we have a conviction of conscience where before we didn't feel this pricking of the heart? And what did uh, what Peter say? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. The same language that Jesus Christ used back there in Luke 24, right? And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that applies to us too, verse 39. The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. People feel a conviction of sin. They feel an inadequacy that we're not where we need to be. What is the message? Repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. And what happened? What happened? 3,000? Notice the language. 3,000 souls were added to the church. Now, there were 3,000 people that were added to the members of the church, members of the roll book, okay? But there were souls that were converted that day. Not born again, but there were souls that went from conviction and burden and shame to now the answer of good conscience before God. There were 3,000 souls that placed their faith in Jesus Christ that said, this is the manner of life that I used to be engaged in and now I'm going to put that away and I'm going to serve Jesus Christ. 3,000 souls were added because of bold public preaching and a call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And then these people that submitted to believers' baptism, they received that 1 Peter 3 salvation in their conscience. Baptism doth now save us with the peace that passes all understanding of justification by faith 
that now I have access by faith into the grace wherein I stand, okay? <clears throat> in Acts chapter 3, they have the healing of the lame man, and now Peter has the opportunity to have the whole temple looking at him. The power of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ allows this man to be healed. It caused such a stir. Everybody had seen this man. And um, they knew, even the enemies of the church said, we can't deny this. I mean, we can't say it's a mistake, case of mistaken identity. Oh, it's the same guy. <laughs> we can't deny this. So it caused this huge stir. And now everyone in the temple is looking at Peter. He has the audience of everyone in the whole temple. And he tells them that it's through Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man's been healed. But I want you to notice the language he uses. Acts chapter 3 and verse 16. You kill, at verse 15 first, he killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof ye are called witnesses and his name through faith in his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong whom you see and, and know. Yea, the faith that is by him hath given this man perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Verse 18, but those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all his prophets that, that Christ should suffer and that he should be so fulfilled. And now he gets to the crux of the message. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now again, it's not eternal, right? But they felt, if you, if you were one of those people, Scripture doesn't highlight a specific person, but I think that it's reasonable to assume, and y'all know the danger with assumptions, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. But I believe that there were people in these audiences that were, they didn't know what was going on, and they were in that mob that was chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they didn't even know who he was. They were just confused in the midst of this mob. And then, all of a sudden, this man stands up after this lame man's been healed, and you that, that used to chant, crucify him, crucify him, he is the Messiah that you've been looking for this whole time. He said, repent and be converted that your sins be blotted out. Don't you know, we're not going to have time to get to, uh, to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, but he was regenerated on the road to Damascus, but he was not converted until three days later when Ananias showed up and said, you're a chosen vessel and your sins are forgiven. He felt in his sins for three days. But you know what? Praise God, the Lord has ordained ministers of the gospel to tell struggling children of God that the Lord has washed away those sins. But I guarantee you, these men in Acts 2 and in Acts 3 and 4 and also Saul of Tarsus, when they went down in that water of baptism, in their experience, in their mind and in their conscience, their sins were blotted out that day. It's the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was paid before God as the reason they're going to go to heaven. But I'll tell you, the way they were able to enter into the kingdom of heaven was because now 
they feel that blotting out in the peace of their conscience. So he says, look, repent ye and be converted. And that's true for people outside the church, but that's the testimony of every single child of God on a daily basis. Repent and be converted. Holy Spirit, show me the areas of my shortcomings. Show me my own pride that is preventing me from accurately assessing my shortcomings. Holy Spirit, through your fire, through your purifying fire, show me my shortcomings. And then there should be a preacher at least once a week that's telling you repent and be converted. Repent and be converted. Um, and what happened as, a refer as an effect of that? First time, 3,000 people joined the church. What happened as an effect of this sermon? 5,000 men joined the church. 5,000 men. <clears throat> Let's go to Acts chapter 6. We'll just close up here. Um, what I want you to meditate on is that there should be testimonies in the kingdom of God. What we've been trying to talk about is identifying attributes of the kingdom of God that distinguishes it. Okay, And when we say this, we, we say this, I trust with all the humility in the world that there is a distinction there's a distinction between the primitive Baptist church that is the, we hope to be, the, the representation of the original Baptist church, the closest representation of that here in the world today. And there are good, godly, Christ-believing, they love God with all their heart, people in other denominations that can't see a real distinction between the Primitive Baptist Church and them. Okay, why, why would I leave me being in a prominent position in this other denomination to go and align myself with a church that's very small, that doesn't have that many people, that's, that doesn't have ornate buildings, that's very unimpressive to the... What is the distinguishing mark of the true kingdom of God? Now, we talked about the kingdom of God in depth. I hope that you remember that there's a sense in which every single child of God is a member of the broad kingdom of God, right? The kingdom is within you, and, and it's not like people in these other denominations that, that God is just furious with what they're doing. No, they're, they're worshiping many of them with more spirit than us. They just don't have the truth that they need. But something I want us to really consider is what is the identifying attributes that separates what we believe to be the true kingdom of God from other people who are still pressing into the kingdom and Christianity as a whole? What, what makes us different? What makes us different? And And there should be a stark difference, not just us saying, oh, we believe in grace and you believe in works. There should be identifying marks of the kingdom of God that even people in, uh, not, not people in the world, okay, but even people in other denominations look at and they're like, you know what, there's something different about these people. There's something special about that. And 
one of those things is radical conversions. We're not going to have time to get over to uh, Acts chapter 19 is really where I wanted to get to. And you have these people that are converted from witchcraft and they burn books worth 50,000 pieces of silver. They, they, through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, they were putting the entire graven image industry out of business, not just in Ephesus, but in all of Asia. Those are, those are things that, number one, people outside the church can look at and be like, wow, I don't, I don't believe this, this Apostle Paul guy but look what this guy's doing. <coughs> but then, let's, let's say, let's, uh, say these, these religious Jews, if you will, that are still going to synagogue, even them, they say, you know what, I don't agree with, you know, he's, he's saying we're saved by grace alone, election predestination, things I haven't heard before, that doesn't really make sense to me. But even though I'm choosing to still go to synagogue on the Sabbath day, even I can recognize they're, there are some powerful things that are happening with this guy over here, even though if I disagree, even though I disagree with him. Okay. And one of those things is radical, prominent conversions. I really haven't got far enough along to be able to develop this the way I want to, but uh, in Acts chapter six, I want to highlight quickly. Um, you have the right, uh, the right disposition. Um, of service in the kingdom, you have the the uh, the ministering to the uh, needs of the community and the widows, and then they appoint deacons to take care of that. And the preacher said, "We're going to give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Lord. We can be fully invested in this." And what's the effect of that? What's the effect of the proper allocation of duties and a, and a full time ministry that's fully invested? The effect of that, verse seven, the word of God increased, <clears throat> and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Okay? And we, we look at that, just kind of read over that. Oh, yeah, some more people were converted. Yeah. I want you to understand the significance of that, okay? Uh, there's people later on, uh, Acts chapter 17. Paul converted a member of the Athenian Areopagus. One of the most prominent political figures in all of Athens were converted by the preaching of Paul when he got in Corinth. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. I mean, I want you to understand how, how powerful this would be. This would be the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. All right? The leader of the Southern Baptist Convention says, you know what, I'm leaving all of my prominence of being the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. And there's this little bitty group of believers that nobody's ever heard of before, and I'm going to go identify myself with I'm going to preach for them. And people would look at that and they say, that's a bad decision. That's a bad business decision. What are you doing? What are you doing? And my hope would be that he would say, you know what? I found a treasure in a field. Matthew chapter 13. I found a treasure in a field. And you know what? I believe may not make sense to you, but I believe that treasure is worth selling all I have to go buy that field. You know, it, was, it would have caused a stir in the community. <laughs> he didn't say a priest or two. A great company of the priests. I mean, the synagogue. Let's just say, I'm just making stuff up. Let's say, let's say they have 20 priests in the synagogue. 15 of them left. 
to become preachers for the kingdom of God. I, I truly believe, we, we pray for God to raise up ministers. And I pray that he raises up ministers inside the church. But I think some of the best old Baptist preachers are preaching for other denominations right now. And, and you look at them and you're like, oh man, man, they got a, they got a retirement plan. They went, they, they went and got a doctorate and they're making, you know, good money at a first Baptist. There is no way that they would leave the cush. You, you would be surprised. You would be very surprised how many conversations ministers have had with prominent leaders in other denominations say, you know what, I believe the same thing you do. I just can't preach it here. Well, you know what? If the Holy Spirit gets a head up, gets a hold of them. They'd be willing to give all that up. I really believe some of the best preachers that could be old Baptists today are currently preaching in other denominations' pulpits. And if people start being converted like that, and we say, "Oh man, the Lord can't do that." <laughs> Listen, just in case you were ever tempted to think that, let's not remember just a little bit up the road in Alabama, there's a whole church being converted. <laughs> Two years ago, you think anyone would have said, you know what, I doubt Brother Buddy and Brother Chris drove by that church and said, you know what, I think they're a good conversion target two years ago. The power of the Holy Spirit worked in them and their priorities changed. What I'm saying is there are powerful, radical changes that happen when the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully in his kingdom. And we need to understand the Holy Spirit is just as powerful today as it was on the day of Pentecost. Just the same today. We need to do our best to invite that. Invite that revival of the Holy Spirit. But that is one of the identifying marks is radical conversions. And people were like, this is, I mean, the wild gatherer. This is who I was. This is who I am. Saul of Tarsus. I was, I was persecuting. Now you're preaching for the same people that you, that you were trying to kill a couple days ago? He said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because Jesus Christ appeared unto me. And those are the kind of testimonies that people were going to be like, whoa, there's something big going on right here. <laughs> That's the identifying marks of the kingdom of God. And we certainly pray that that the Spirit of God would move in such a way where they could see that among us in the kingdom of God as well. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.